Double D bonus episode. Hey guys, um, it's Danny. I am sick, but I am going to poop out an episode for you because I like you guys. Today's episode might be a little bit lengthy and don't be mad at me for it. Okay. Okay. Today's uh, bonus episode is on asylums and treatments. Yeah, let's uh, let's get started. The first hospital in the U.S. opened its doors in 1753 in Philadelphia. While it treated a variety of patients, six of its first patients suffered from mental illness. The Quakers in Philadelphia were the first in America to make an organized effort to care for the mentally ill. The newly opened Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia provided rooms in the basement, complete with shackles attached to the walls to house a small number of mentally ill patients. Within a year or two, the press for admissions required additional space, and a ward was opened beside the hospital. In fact, the Pennsylvania Hospital would have a pivotal impact on psychiatry. Benjamin Rush, a physician who has been referred to as the father of modern psychiatry, largely due to his book Medical Inquiries and Observations on the Diseases of the Mind, worked at the hospital. He believed in treating the mentally ill patients with bloodletting, a treatment that was used by ancient civilizations, and we will talk more about this later. It was thought that removing blood from the body would help to ease the tension. Patients would indeed typically calm down after bloodletting, but that was mainly because they were just too weak. So, like, hey, you're acting kind of weird. Let me suck all the blood out of you. Oof. I just can't imagine. In the following years, uh, 1773 to be exact, to deal with the mentally disturbed people who were causing problems in the community, the Virginia legislature provided funds to build a small hospital in Williamsburg. Over the years, the hospital grew in size as needs arose, but remained within the historic area of the city until the mid-20th century. When a new hospital was built in a suburb, today it is known as the Eastern State Hospital. And then in 1792, the New York Hospital opened a war for curable insane patients. In 1808, a freestanding medical facility was built nearby for the humane treatment of the mentally ill. In 1821, a larger facility called the Bloomingdale Asylum was built in what is now known as the Upper West Side. In 1894, it was moved further away to a suburb of White Plains, which is currently under operation as Payne Whitney Westchester Hospital a division of the New York Hospital Cornell Wheel Medical Center. In 872, Ahmad Ibn Tulin built a hospital in Cairo that provided care for the insane, which really surprisingly, especially to me, because I didn't think this was even a thought, it included music therapy, which is a pretty, I don't know, I, I think it's kind of a progressive idea, but maybe maybe I'm just out of the loop. I don't know. During the medieval era, the small subsection of the population of those considered mad were housed in an institutional setting, where 
During the medieval era, the small subsection of the population of those considered mad were housed in mostly institutional settings, but they were often held in a variety of settings. Porter gives examples of such locales where some of the insane were cared for, such as monasteries. Few towns had towers where madmen were kept, called Nurenturim, Nurenturimi? I, I only know it is a fool's tower. I can't pronounce German right now. I am sick. <laughs> Feel bad for me. Also had a small number of cells set aside for lunatics. The ancient Parisian hospital, Hotel Dieu, also had a small number of cells set aside for lunatics. Whilst the town of Elving boasted a madhouse, the Toad House, attached to the Totonic Knights Hospital, Dave Shepard's development of mental health law and practice begins in 12. 85 with a case that linked the instigation of the devil with being frantic and mad. In London, England, the priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. My mouth is just, I'm like, I'm sick, so it's a hundred times worse. Let me get a drink. Okay. No, that's on the bottom. I might be dying. In London, England, the priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem, which later became known more notoriously as Bedlam, was founded in 1247 at the start of the 15th century. It housed about six insane men. The former lunatic asylum, Het Dowlies, established in the 16th century in Harlem, in the Netherlands, <laughs> has been adapted as a museum of psychiatry, with an overview of treatments from the origins of the building up until the 1990s. I'm pretty sure you guys are familiar with the horrific treatment of patients in mental hospitals or asylums. However, the first group of institutions were really different. Not only did they have good intentions to help the individuals with mental illness, they were also smaller and offered individual care. They followed the footsteps of Philippe Pinel, a psychiatrist in charge of the first Parisian asylum. So that's pretty fucking cool. She... Asylums changed from treating patients to just housing. Administering moral treatment was wasn't feasible anymore, considering that asylums went from having a couple hundred patients to thousands of patients. According to Benjamin and Baker in 2004, in the 1820s, on average, 57 patients were admitted to each asylum. In the 1870s, that number had risen to 473 patients. That's in fucking sane, by the way. The Lunacy Act of 1845 was an important landmark in the treatment of the mentally ill, as it explicitly changed the status of mentally ill people to patients who required treatment. The act created the Lunacy Commission, headed by Lord Shaftesbury, wow, that's a fucking name, to focus on lunacy legislation reform. The commission was made up of 11 metropolitan commissioners who were required to carry out the provisions of the act. The compulsory construction of asylums in every county with regular inspections on behalf of the home security. All asylums were required to have written regulations and to have resident qualified physicians. In my home city, of Buffalo, New York, we have a massive, well, it used to be a massive complex. It was called the Buffalo State Asylum for the Insane, but now it's called Hotel Henry, and it has, it was massive. It covered many, many blocks and was self-sufficient. It went by a couple names. It went by the Buffalo State Asylum for the Insane, the Richardson Olmstead, oh my mouth is really trash, Richardson Olmstead Campus, Hotel Henry, and a lot of locals just call it the psych center or the Buffalo Asylum, stuff like that. It goes by a lot of names here. So I figured I would do a little itty bitty snippet about one of my favorite places. And if you remember correctly, um, in my last bonus episode about shadow people, I did talk about seeing shadow people there. So 
Cool. Neat. Wicked. Richardson Olmsted Campus began in 1872, and it opened in 1880 as the -the state-of-the-art Buffalo State Asylum for the Insane. The project, incorporating the then most enlightened humane principles in psychiatric treatment, resulted in the collaboration of three important designers and thinkers of the 19th century. Noted American architect Henry Hobson Richardson, father of the Richardsonian Romanesque architectural style. Don't worry, I will be posting pictures of this beautiful building. If you've never seen it, you're gonna poop your pants. Anyways, American landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, who had designed Central Park in New York City as well as Buffalo's beautiful park system in a partnership with architect and landscape engineer Calvair Vaux. Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride, superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane in Philadelphia and founder of the Association of Medical Superintendents of America Institutions for the Insane, AMSII, which is so much easier to say than all those many words, a precursor to the American Psychiatric Association. Over the years, mental health treatment changed, as did the buildings and the grounds. In 1927, the site was reduced by half to develop Buffalo State College. Patients were moved to a new facility in the 1970s. The Richardson Olmsted campus began to deteriorate and was eventually abandoned, which is really sad. I hate to say it like this, but I was lucky enough to hang out around the complex inside outside and became pretty friendly with the security guards on the campus but um I I was lucky enough to be able to see it in its very sad form which was beautiful and at the same time incredibly sad to see I had I mean I guess this isn't enough for a bonus episode so I'll just throw it in here um I had a family member that was committed there and he um used to talk to trees and people outside the windows. I believe, I want to say he was, I don't know, related to my grandmother or he was an uncle of hers. I can't remember exactly. The story was told to me so long ago. So he was committed there um, and that's where he died. And then I've heard lots of stories about the building, about how they weren't exactly finished with the windows and a lot of the patients would lean up against the glass of the windows and literally fall out of the windows, riding the plate glass window all the way to the ground. And if you've seen this building, you know how big this building is and you know that's going to hurt. There's a lot of those little stories, but I'd have to really gather them all together to make a whole bonus episode out of it. Anyways, can we just, I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) So let's talk uh, treatments. Yeah, let's talk treatments now. Okay. Okay. This is where a lot of people are very interested. They're not so much interested in, you know, the history of the asylum or where the first asylums were built or any of that. So let's get into the the creepy, crappy shit. So treatments. Ben Rush, as we talked about before, previous, when we first started talking, instead of letting out the demons, as the treatment bloodletting was originally intended, it was thought that the body's fluids were out of balance. As such, they purged, blistered, vomited, and bled patients. And this is uh, something that Benjamin Rush was doing. Um, Remember, we talked about him about three minutes ago, (laughs) about 10 minutes in my time, three minutes in your time, um, about him being the father of psychiatry. Wow, my mouth. So sorry. Let's talk about Henry Cotton. Woo, let's do it. 
Okay. Henry Cotton, superintendent at New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital from 1907 to 1930, thought infected parts of the body led to mental illness. He focused on pulling rotted teeth, which he thought caused madness-inducing infections. When that didn't work, presumably because contaminated saliva still made its way into the body, Cotton began actually removing tonsils as well. Oh no, we're not done. There's more. And then... Cotton took it a step further, removing parts of stomach, small intestines, appendixes, gallbladders, thyroid glands, trash mouth, and particularly parts of the colon, any place where it was thought infection could linger. Unsurprisingly, this did not prove to be a reliable cure, <laughs> and it carried a high mortality rate. Fucking surprise. Like, the crazy shit. Like, nowadays, this is logic, right? You're like, you're crazy is not, you know is not made from infection or your butthole or your fucking gallbladder. It's just logic now. I don't, I couldn't imagine living in a time where it was like, oh, she's crazy. We have to cut out her colon. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's scary. Brought to the United States by Manfred Seckel, a German neurologist, insulin shock therapy injected high levels of insulin into patients to cause convulsions and a coma. After several hours, the living dead would be revived from the coma and thought cured of their madness. This process would be repeated daily for months at a time, with doctors sometimes administering as many as 50 to 60 treatments per patient. However, the procedure was obviously risky and caused amnesia. Again, I cannot. I remember the first time I read about insulin shock therapy and the coma and all of that. I wonder if I could find the first story I read about it because it was just so interesting. But at the same time, it was like, oh my God, they did this to people thinking this was helping? Yuck. Let's move on. I'm sorry. My nose is running. I have, I have a septum ring and if I get a cold for some reason... I'm like Booger Central. I'm so sorry if I'm breathing all stupid. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Ayo, another shock therapy was yet to come. Metrazole shock therapy, like insulin, worked on the mistaken premise that epilepsy and schizophrenia couldn't exist at the same time. It's just really a painful sentence to fucking say. The key was seizures. Laszlo von Manduna, a Hungarian physician, discovered that the drug metrazole could produce seizure-like convulsions in patients, therefore shocking their brains out of mental illness. It proved to be a shock physically as well. Oh, this is terrifying. Metrazole also provoked thrashing convulsions so violent they became quite literally backbreaking. Oh, like... Seriously, like some of these sentences that I have to read that are coming out of my mouth are making me just go, what? <laughs> Around the same time, oh, this is a good one. This is this is one of my favorite stories to tell my kids. No joke. Around the same time, doctors overseas performed the first lobotomies. The practice was brought to the United States thanks to Walter Freeman. Woo! who began experimenting with lobotomies in the 1940s, well, in the mid-1940s, which required damaging neural connections in the prefrontal cortex area of the brain thought to cause mental illness. The problem was lobotomies didn't just stop bad behaviors. They damaged people's memories and personalities, which even Freeman admitted Every patient probably loses something by this operation. Some spontaneity, some sparkle, some flavor of personality. Which is so fucked up. Uh, sorry. 
I have really strong feelings about how people were treated back in the day. (laughs) Drugs had also been used in treating the mentally ill as far back as the mid-1800s. Their purpose then was to sedate patients to keep overcrowded asylums more manageable. Just make it easier for the people that are supposed to be taking care of the people that need taken care of. My fucking God. Okay. A kind of chemical restraint to replace the physical restraints of early years. And then came Thorazine, the medical breakthrough thychiatrists. My mouth. I'm so sorry. I'm so sick and my mouth is just... (sighs) The medical breakthrough psychiatrists had seemingly been searching for all these years. While it wasn't perfect, it proved much safer and effective at treating severe mental illness. And following this massive breakthrough, we have been blessed with our current medications to treat mental illness. Like, I'm on Zoloft... And so is my youngest son. (laughs) And without that, I don't know where the fuck I would be. So here I am talking about all these asylums and all this. And I have a story about a person, a woman that I absolutely adore. Um, I'm going to give you a little, a little bit about her. And I'm going to give you a little bit about what she wrote. She's literally one of the first investigative reporters. Like she's like, the first sneaky bitch to expose somebody for being naughty. And I fucking love her. And I kind of share a name with her. So let's just um, give me a high five for being able to share a name. As I don't go by this name anymore. But her name is Nellie Bly. Her real name is Elizabeth Conkren Seaman. Bly was her married name. She went back to her maiden name. Anyways, let's go. Ready? Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, born May 5th, 1864, and died of pneumonia uh, January 27th, 1922. Better known by her pen name, Nellie Bly, was an American journalist, industrialist, inventor, and charity worker who was widely known for her record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days, an emulation of Jules Verne's fictional character Phileas Fogg, and an expose in which she worked undercover to report on a mental institution from within. She was a pioneer in her field and launched a new kind of investigative journalism. In 1888, Bly suggested to her editor at the New York World that she take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional Around the World in 80 Days into fact for the first time. A year later, at 9.40 a.m. on November 14, 1889, and with two days' notice, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer of the Hamburg-America Line, and began her 40,070-kilometer journey. She took with her the dress she was wearing, a sturdy overcoat, several changes of underwear, God bless, and a small travel bag carrying her toiletry essentials. She carried most of her money, 200 pounds in English banknotes and gold, as well as some American currency, in a bag tied around her neck. That's like old school fanny pack. God, I love this woman. During her travels around the world, Bly went through England, France, where she met Jules Verne's in Amiens, Brandesai, the Suez Canal, Colombo, the Strait Settlements of Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. The development of efficient submarine cable networks and the electric telegraph allowed Bly to send short progress reports. 
although longer dispatches had to travel by regular post and thus were often delayed by several weeks. So could you imagine, like, just waiting for, like, four weeks for a message to know that she's even still alive? It's crazy. (laughs) Bly traveled using steamships and the existing railroad systems, which caused occasional setbacks, particularly on the Asian leg of her race. During those stops, she visited a leopard colony in China, and in Singapore, she bought a monkey. Man, if I went to Singapore, you know I'd be buying a monkey. No, I wouldn't. That's cruel. (laughs) I will not support monkey trade. Damn it. But wouldn't it be cool to have a monkey? Anyways, just over 72 days after her departure from Hoboken, Bly was back in New York. She had circumnavigated the globe, traveling alone for almost the entire journey. Seriously, you get, like, a fucking letter every four weeks, and it's like, I'm still alive, but then you have to wait another four weeks, and hopefully you get a fucking letter? Jesus Christ, that's crazy talk. I can't, I can't do it. Jesus Christ. God, I love her. Anyways, let's get into the good shit. I'm gonna start with a little quote. If you don't love this bitch, I don't know if we can be friends. I mean, you could still subscribe to the podcast and all, but I don't know if we can be friends. Anyways, nearly all night long, I listened to a woman cry about the cold and beg for God to let her die. Another one yelled, murder, at a frequent interval, and police, at others, until my flesh felt creepy. Bly wrote about her first night at the institution in her expose for Joseph Pulitzer. There we go. Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. Let's see, how did she get in there? She took a room at a cheap boarding house, temporary home for females, number 84 on 2nd Avenue, under the name Bly Brown, and began questioning and imitating the women who seemed most insane to her. Soon enough, it was Bly who was deemed crazy, and the matron of the house enlisted a few cops to escort Bly to the Essex Market Police Courtroom, where an impatient judge named Duffy pronounced her insane and ordered her to the famed insane ward at Bellevue Hospital, the city's largest charitable hospital. Mm, Was it charity? Mm, Were you just dumping people in there? Sorry. I have feelings about this. A few days later, she boarded a ferry boat filled stem to stern with unwashed, uncomprehending women from Blackwell's Island. An insane place, one ambulance driver told her, we will never get out of. A fairly easy way to get committed, if you ask me, though. I mean, all she had to do was be like, gobbledygook, boogla, boogla, scare some normals. And they were like, oh, she crazy. Let's send her away. And let me tell you right now, how she didn't shit her pants is beyond me. I mean, maybe she did to get certified, but I mean, that would be horrifying to me. One of my worst nightmares is being locked up because I'm, I can't even, it's just so easy to get committed, but whatever. Bly painted a dire picture in which 16 doctors were assigned to care for some 1,600 inmates, excepting two, she recorded. I've never seen them pay any attention to the patients. She also questioned the judge's ability to pronounce a woman insane by merely bidding her good morning and refusing to hear her pleas of release. Even the sick ones know it is useless to say anything, for the answer will be that it is in their imagination. Which is fucked up. Anyways, 
She also reported on the cultural insensitivity and language barriers experienced by immigrant women who spoke little to no English and a host of hostile and abusive treatments, from mandatory cold baths to confinement in small, damp, vermin-infested locked rooms. After a few days on Blackwell's Island, Bly dropped her act of acting crazy and tried to present herself as in more of a fit mental state. Such efforts were all for naught until the New York world sent an attorney to arrange her release. Two days later, on Sunday, October 9th, 1887, the world ran the first installment of her story titled Behind Asylum Bars, and Bly became an overnight sensation. Bly subsequently published her daring dispatches as a book, Ten Days in a Madhouse. It is a slim volume that remains a classic in the annals of psychiatry, and a cognate warning against inhumane treatment of the mentally ill. It proved so embarrassing to the city aldermen that they appropriated an extra $1 million to correct any of the abuses Bly had exposed. Fuck! That's a lot of money. (laughs) So that is my little episode on asylums. My sources were as follows. The psychcentral.com birth of the mental asylum uh, wikipedia my best friend not always correct but i do fact check so uh richardsonolmstead.com slash learn slash history the nlm.nih.gov diseases early treatments talkspace.com slash blog slash history of inhumane mental health treatments and the washington post <sighs> This one was a lot, and it took a lot. It took a few days for me to, to write this, which is a hot fucking mess. So this is, um, yeah, this is it. This is my episode on asylums and treatments. And then a little blurb about one of my personal heroes. So, yeah, uh, like always, you can find us on Facebook. Just look for Double D Movie Night Podcast. Type that in your search bar. We'll show up. The picture of Bubs holding his headphones, enjoying the classical music. You can find us on Instagram at Double D Movie Night. And I'm always posting on there. So if you ever want to talk, I'm always on there. <laughs> you can email us at Double D Movie Night at gmail.com. Um, what else is there? Boop, boop, boop. We have a link tree. I will put the link to that at the um, in the show notes. And there's where you're going to find our merch and uh, our Ko-Fi and all that. <sighs> that is that. We still have some buttons left. And if you would like some, let us know. We will send them out to you. But yeah, that is it. And I'm thinking about doing another discount for our listeners um, in the merch store. So keep your eyes peeled for that or your ears peeled because I might send a a voice message out into the world. We'll save you money on our merchandise. Um, But yeah, Uh, and if you want, it would be really cool if you shared us with a friend or if you followed us. Um, We're on all sorts of podcast outlets. I mean, seriously, I think we're on all of them. So that's that on that. Yeah. Oh, and if you would like to, that would be really, really cool if you could give us a review on Apple. Um, Android users, I'm real sorry, but you can't leave reviews. But you can follow us, which will help us get a a little bit more notice out there in the big, wide world of podcasting. Um, If you have have any um, requests, uh, film requests, or topics that you would like me to talk about on bonus episodes, I will be more than happy to, and I will give you credit for the idea, of course. Um, So yeah, that is that on that, and I'm done. 
So I'm sick and I will be recording again tomorrow with Dominic. So wish me luck and hope to God my voice doesn't just shit out completely today. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode. Be sure to follow, share, and rate us on your podcast apps.